Thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, he's one of Canada's most noted and celebrated journalists. Haroon Siddiqui arrived in Canada from India as the country celebrated its centennial back in 1967. And his new book called My Name is Not Harry charts a remarkable journey that would follow for both him and the country he now calls home. He's with me to talk all about it. It's deadline night for a lot of small businesses across the country tonight to pay back their pandemic-related SIBA loans and to receive partial forgiveness. Almost 900,000 businesses and nonprofits received the loans during the pandemic, getting up to $60,000 in interest-free loans to help them survive. But many are struggling to repay that money now. And not being able to take advantage of the forgiveness of part of that loan is a big burden that some businesses just won't be able to handle. We speak to one business owner about her options and her concerns. Globe and Mail health columnist Andre Picard joins me on our weekly Journalism Corner segment to talk about some of the issues he's been writing about of late, including the crisis in Canada's emergency departments. New rules came into effect this week in BC on how pets are considered under family law, and advocates say it sets an important new precedent. We look into the changes, what they mean, and how they might be spreading to other parts of the country in the not-too-distant future. But first, he is one of the greatest comedians of all time. The late George Carlin was often imitated, never duplicated, until now. George Carlin, I'm Glad I'm Dead, is an hour-long YouTube video of AI-generated images narrated and purportedly written and performed by a generative artificial intelligence model as an imitation of Carlin. His daughter, Kelly, also a performer and author, joins me to explain why the whole thing is no laughing matter. This one, though, I mean, again, it's been talked about already. He is one of the greats, perhaps the greatest. George Carlin, in many ways, is still as relevant today as he was during his long career and at the time of his death back in uh, about 15 years ago. Have a listen to one bit of one of his ma- many famous routines because it is very prescient uh, in, with regards to this next story. It's called Modern Man. It's a bit of a rap, and he did this right near the end of his life. I'm a modern man, a man for the millennium, digital and smoke-free, a diversified multicultural postmodern deconstructionist, politically, anatomically, and ecologically incorrect. I've been uplinked and downloaded, I've been inputted and outsourced, I know the upside of downsizing, I know the downside of upgrading. I'm a high-tech lowlife, a cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, bi-coastal multitasker, and I can give you a gigabyte in a nanosecond. I'm new wave, but I'm old school, and my inner child is outward bound. I'm a hot-wired, heat-seeking, warm-hearted, cool customer, voice-activated and biodegradable. I interface with my database, my database is in cyberspace, so I'm interactive, I'm hyperactive, and from time to time, I'm radioactive. <laughs> you can't, I mean, George Carlin, even, I mean, those, that was near the end of his career, and still just absolutely on point uh, and prescient because this next story really is about um, about technology. Again, I think it's common over the past, you know, since his passing to think, I wonder what George Carlin would say about this. I mean, I think that of not that many people, I wonder what they would say about what's going on these days, any number of things that are happening around the world. Well, of course, with the advent of artificial intelligence, it is now perhaps unfortunately possible to scratch that itch. And that, uh, well, in this case, it's it's no laughing matter, at least according to my next guest. This thing is called George Carlin, I'm Glad I'm Dead. It's an hour-long YouTube video of AI-generated images narrated and purportedly written and performed by generative artificial intelligence as an imitation of Carlin. Have a listen. 
Hello, my name is Dudesy, and I'm a comedy AI. Before I get started, I just want to let you know very clearly that what you're about to hear is not George Carlin. It's my impersonation of George Carlin. I'd like to start off with a heartfelt apology. I'm sorry it took me so long to come out with new material, but I, I do have a pretty good excuse. I was dead. <laughs> so technically, it wasn't my fault. If you want to blame somebody, you're going to have to blame God. <laughs> You get a promotion, praise Jesus. You get fired. God is testing me. Yeah, that's it. I mean, it sounds a little bit like him, right? But that's artificial intelligence. It was all apparently done by AI. It's had nearly half a million views at this point. Uh, but you know who's not so pleased about it? Kelly Carlin, writer, performer, founder of a life coaching program called Humans on the Verge, executive producer of the Emmy Award-winning Judd Apatow uh, documentary on uh, George Carlin called George Carlin's American Dream, and author of A Carlin Home Companion, Growing Up with George. She is, of course, George Carlin's only child. Kelly, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thanks for having me, Ben. Uh, I, I mean, I, th I think a lot of people, you know, I, I, I was saying to someone often imitated, never duplicated your dad. I was caught off guard by by this AI thing. I could have thought of a lot of things that would be sort of taken over or a lot of attempts that people could have made using AI. And certainly uh, George Carlin was not one of them because that's a very, very tough thing to do. What, what, did, did you have any heads up about this? Absolutely none. Just dropped in my lap, just like it did the rest of the world's. What did you make of it? I mean, I, I was I was shocked at how terrible it was, but parts of it are, are are alarmingly realistic. I did not watch the whole thing. I watched only the first three or four minutes just to get a feel for it. It is a bad, if, it, if you're calling it an impression, in my artistic opinion, it is a bad impression, actually. It's a poor rep replication of my father. Didn't sound anything like him. Even the cadence wasn't really his. Uh, the topics were probably things he would want to tackle these days, but I don't think much of the of the content of it was anything that would have matched what he thought or how he would express himself. So I, I just think it's just a, a ridiculous attempt at stealing his his personality and his persona. I was thinking this is something you could have ignored if you'd wanted to. Uh, you felt the need to speak out. I can, you know, I've read, I've read the book. I, I think I have a, a vague idea of why, but it was important for you to, to stand up against this, wasn't it? Yes, for many reasons. A, if you don't stand up to things like this, people take it as a tacit approval that they can get away with doing this also. And also, you're going to pick George Carlin as your first attempt to do something like this. I really feel that it's the tip of the spear and they poked the wrong bear. And um, we are not just wanting to defend ourselves and our own right to protect our rights of publicity and our copyrighted and intellectual property. But I feel that it's important that we draw a line in the sand for others, uh, whether they be celebrities dead or alive, but really humans, just humans like the fact that they can get away with this is crazy and they, you know, and they shouldn't be able to, or the fact that they just attempted to do this, the audacity. And maybe the disrespect too. I was, I was struck by something that you um, said in the lead up to selecting sort of working with Judd Apatow on the, on the documentary, which was how many offers you had had to do something about your father and how long it had taken for the right fit to come along it was very intuitive for you. And, and how much of a violation this is 
to that. Oh, well said, Ben. I don't think anyone's made that point, but that is very true. We we work very intuitively and but also really always trying to live up to my father's standards of quality uh, when we decide to do something, a project in his name or with his material. And yes, so the violation feels even worse now because you know, I feel like they're using him to experiment on or something. It's like a Frankenstein kind of a thing. And one thing that's happened for me the last 15 years after my dad died was really to become part of the comedy community. And I've worked very hard to represent my father's legacy with intelligence and heart. And people respect me for that. And I'm proud of that. And my dad would be proud of me. And my mom would be proud of me for that. And this just feels like ignoring of all of that. And maybe they knew that they would have probably been turned down. So they being decided on forgiveness rather than permission, you know, as so many people do when they probably know they're in the wrong. Agreed. Uh, what did you make of this whole idea? I mean, they go to great lengths to sort of qualify it off the top as an impression. You know, this is, you know, like someone like Will Farrell doing an impression or so on. And um, it, it doesn't feel like, I mean, it, the way that it's structured does not feel like an impression. It feels like it, it, it's like, it reminded me of the old days of sampling when they, when, you know, they would just simply rip off the whole backing track and then use it ostensibly back then to create something better in this case to create something i think uh, not very good at all but uh, this didn't feel like an imitation it felt like it felt like co- sort of copyright vi- i mean i don't want to get into the legalese of it but it didn't feel like uh it didn't feel like a tribute or an imitation yeah i th- i think it's an attempt for them to cover their asses um no one else has used that phrase yet in this kind of thing and no one's really done something like this before so I know they've done a couple of music things and there's, you know, some some things out there around that. But yeah, I, it's definitely used as an artistic phrase to try to say that it's some sort of artistic attempt, uh, you know, an attempt at some sort of artistic performance piece. But I don't think that will really protect them or hold or it'll hold water. Who knows? And you know, the thing about impressions is that we're impressed by impressions because a human being is trying to fit into the skin of another human being and they kind of activate certain aspects of the personality or gesture or rhythm or tone or topic. So so yes, in that way, it's an impression. But like stand-up comedy, uh, impressions are impressive because like we're human people watching other humans trying to do another human. And I don't know if an AI attempting to do another human being if that's what they're going to call it, then we'll see. We'll see how the culture and and maybe the rest of the legal, you know, who knows, right? Uh, st- how this stands up. When you called it the tip of the spear, I think a lot of people, I mean, we've been doing stories on AI and what it can and cannot do and recreating songs and so on. And, you know, and then, the, you know, there was a whole kerfuffle around the Beatles sort of using wasn't AI as such, certainly not like this, but using sort of enhancements to try to recreate music. I mean, clearly there is a place for this sort of stuff in the arts, but but this felt like something very different, something we maybe hadn't seen much of before. And it felt like a bit of a warning sign to people's legacies and those who's uh, who protect the legacies of those who've, who've been loved and have passed. Yeah, the other ones has the artist's permission or the artist's family's permission, which is really important. Kim Kardashian gave away her whole persona personality 
I think as a bot on Instagram, she signed a big deal to that. She got a lot of money for that. That's the way it should be. My dad didn't have a vote in this. His representations who were still alive, me, representatives, myself and my father's manager, we didn't have a vote in this. Big difference in that. You know, yes, of course, AI is going to be used in all sorts of ways. And let's be, you know, real here. It's not like these guys decided to do this and then just listen to it in their living room. They decided to make a big deal out of this. To monetize it, to monetize your dad's memory, essentially. And and to use it, you know, and to put it out in the world, to make it public. So that's their, that's a line that they decided to cross. Of course, they could have just done it and listened to it with their friends, uh, which no one would have known. And there would have been, I would have never known, and it wouldn't have been a big deal. But they're the ones who've made a big deal out of it. I'll tell you what they ought to do about homelessness. First thing, change the name of it. Change the name of the condition. It's not homelessness. It's houselessness. It's houses these people need. A home is an abstract idea. A home is a setting. It's a state of mind. These people need houses, physical, tangible structures. But where are you going to put them? Where are you going to build them? Nobody wants you to build low-cost housing near their house. People don't want it near them. We got something in this country, you've heard of it, it's called NIMBY, N-I-M-B-Y. Not in my backyard. Kelly Carlin, writer-performer, is with us this half hour. Her book is called Author of a Carlin Home Companion, or she's author of a Carlin Home Companion, Growing Up with George. She is George Carlin's only child uh, and a protector of his legacy, along with his manager as well. Of course, uh, Carlin himself passed away 15 years ago at this point. Kelly, it's, I mean, one of the ways to look at this too, and I was interested, you talked a bit about in your, in your your on social media about people not being able to accept the void. And I think a lot of times, in some ways, people will always say, even today, I wonder what George Carlin would think of that. Like, I wonder what he, what skit he would do on January 6th. You know, wouldn't it be great to hear from him? And there are certain artists who occupy that great pantheon of, I really wish they were still here to talk about this stuff. And, and your, your father's certainly one of them. Why do you think it still resonates so deeply with so many uh, 15 years later and many years after he got his got his start? I think because he spoke about things from a perspective that was not topical and did not move through the the kind of lower news cycle, but were the big topics of humanity. And he took on the big pillars, the big institutional pillars of civilization, and always really was asking the question about, are we doing this well? And he had really, really sharp, interesting opinions and perspectives that any of us in the audience, if we were a fan of his, would say, wow, I wish I'd been able to say it that way. Or I think I've thought of that, but I could, I would have never have articulated it or even, wow, I've never thought of it that way. And it could be something absurd because he was an absurdist on some level, Um, but we would laugh at it. And then there would, something would be really, really close to home and truthful. And we would laugh at it too. You know, he had a great way of cutting through the BS of our, our human psyche and our human denial system. You know, one of the reasons we did the documentary, the way we did it and the way, and the reason Judd was so excited to do it was because my dad was trending on Twitter a lot in 2020, 2021, uh, during the early Trump era, uh, during the abortion, the Dobbs thing, you know, like every time a big issue would come up, my dad would have already said the thing that we needed to say to the culture 15, 25, 35 years ago. So he was saying it and we were not really listening. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, we were we were laughing. Sometimes you were laughing too much to listen, right? I mean, that's well, that was yes, kind of the interesting we, part. Well, I think part of us were going, "Oh, that can't be really, really true." Like we're going to do better, right? We're going to fix this before it gets that bad. And my dad's looking at us, going, "No, the reason I'm saying this because it is the truth." And it is where we're going or where we are. And, and the consequences are going to get much, much more tangible in the future. And I think that's the reality is we're living in the consequences now of his perspectives. We could kind of shuffle them off before. We could, you know, stay with our shiny objects. And then we got a bunch of more shiny objects in 2008 when the, the smartphone came out. Right. Um, and, and the Internet really, really exploded. But, you know, we could stick our head in the sand still. And now we can no longer do that. And so his stuff is like, it's like someone reading Bible verses, you know? <laughs> it is. I was, but one of the things about your book that I found so, I mean, sometimes you look for things you don't know about someone. And I was thinking about that in relation to the, what this conversation we're having about this whole AI thing today. It's when your dad wakes you up to watch the moon landing. And I thought George Carlin wasn't a man. He wasn't a curmudgeon. He was a man who believed in, he was a man who could be awed by by stuff and blown away by, by the, in, in the ingenuity of the human race. He was just disappointed when we fell so short. Yes, yes. As I said, as he finally said, because I, you know, I busted him on it and what and really what the underlying theme of the documentary was, is that this is a broken hearted idealist. This is a human being who really, you know, as he says, when you look in the eyes of another human, you see the universe. Uh, but the minute you get three or four of us together, things start to go down. Pretty quickly, we suddenly have the name of our group and we've got armbands and we've got ideas. You know, I'm a practicing Buddhist and I'm a, a study depth psychology, Jungian psychology. Mm-hmm. You know, and in many ways, my father was the original one of the original depth psychologists, too. He really did look at the collective psyche and how we kind of put ourselves to sleep and um, how how our ego so quickly fools us into doing foolish things. Yeah, it's amazing. And watching some of the, the promos for the documentary that where they interviewed other comedians, everybody you could think of, John Stewart, Jerry Seinfeld, I mean, you name it. The admiration that that so many people had out there, not just for, well, just for him as a comedian, period, that the way, the way he used comedy to, to I mean, make people think. I, he, he talks about that. He, he wants people to know that he's the one doing, that he's thinking, yes. right? Yeah, yes. I always like that line. I love that too. Yeah. And I can relate as an artist, as a writer mm-hmm. too, you know, come up with a sentence. I'm sure you can, Ben, too. A sentence will come out of you and you're like, oh, oh, I can't wait to read this out loud or for someone <laughs> to read this. You know, there's a part of you that gets excited about because these things come through us. You know, we are this kind of weird vessel for this stuff. I Who really understands the unconscious and how it works in the creative process? But um, yes, he he did, he did get a charge out of knowing that... Uh, he had been thinking a lot while away, and he had come to bring the, his thoughts to the group. <laughs> and I think if anything about this whole AI thing that resonates with me so much is it's just how, you know, listening to a bit of it, because a bit of the cadence, the cadence isn't quite right, but it's it's sort of, it's like a very bad facsimile of your dad. It was just how difficult it was and still is to do what your dad did for so long. Sometimes great, sometimes he had ups and downs, but... Uh, at his prime, there was just no way you could ever, the AI will never come, AI can do lots of stuff, but it won't come close to being George Carlin. 
Yeah, you know, two things with that. Yes, because, you know, we talk about these unique, each of us is a unique expression of the life force. You could say it that way, right? And no one will ever be able to be a Ben O'Hara Byrne or a Kelly Carlin or a George Carlin, right? We have our our own experiences and our own ways of thinking and, and, and all of that, right? So there's that unique thing that they were trying to replicate. But let's say even that it was a great impression. And, and you know, and I've heard some of the jokes are funny. Great. Some of the jokes are funny. That's not the point. The point is they did this without permission. You can't steal someone's personality to make your own artistic thing. You know, if you want to be a, a an AI stand-up, uh, if, this, if this AI bot wants to be a stand-up so much, do his 10,000 hours like everyone else does. Do bad open mics, fail, fall on his face, have to deal with drunks, have to deal with people, you know, getting their check in front of him, uh, you know, on the road, having to sleep in crappy motels, you know, he should put in his 10,000 hours too. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) He needs a 57 Dodge Dart. That's what we need to send his way. Well, you know, it does start, it does start a career off well, I've heard. (laughs) Kelly, it's been, uh, thank you so much. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Ben. This has been great. Whoever the animal is most bonded to, you got to think about what's best for the animal. I imagine you'd want to share an animal like you would kids. I know we're pretty attached to our dog. That was some pet owners reacting a little earlier this week here in BC to uh, some changes that have come in to family law here in BC. It's an interesting change. It's also um, a precedent setting one in this country. What it does is improves the way that custody of pets is determined after a separation or divorce, it become it can be a pretty thorny issue, right? Um, and within family law, I mean, it was essentially treated as property for a long time. I don't know if that's the right way of putting it. I'll ask our next guest. But essentially, uh, pets were treated like property uh, to be divided up or to be, you know, that's the way they were, um, that custody was decided. Uh, this allows the courts a lot more um, well, it gives them new guidelines, essentially, to figure out whether or not a person's ability or willingness to care for the animal should come in, the relationships between a child and an animal, the risks of animal cruelty, um, to help determine exactly who should get custody of the pet and or pets. Here, by the way, is BC Premier's David Eby. Yes, even he talked about it. Pets are not treated as simply property, that their special place in the family is considered by the courts. Uh, joining me now is V. Victoria Shroff, KC, animal lawyer at Shroff Animal Law in Vancouver, an adjunct professor of animal law at UBC. She is BC's longest-serving animal law lawyer and one of Canada's first animal lawyers and author of a textbook called Canadian Animal Law So, and and a big promoter, of, a promoter, a big proponent uh, of this change as well. Uh, Victoria, thank you so much for your time. Oh, pleasure. This was interesting because I'd heard about it sort of as it was going on without quite realizing that it was setting a precedent. But tell me a bit about uh, about this big change. What exactly has happened? Well, it's huge. I, I think we, we're going to look back in history and we're going to say January 15th, 2024 was a historic day for families in B.C. because the family includes the family pet. And that's now been legislated. So B.C. has broken legislative ground. This is the first of its kind in Canada, and it's absolutely groundbreaking. I know the word groundbreaking is, is used a lot, Ben, but in this case, it's absolutely true. Um, and so uh, it's just it's something that I think we're going to see rolling out in the rest of Canada in time, 
But BC's uh, doing it for the, you know, as of January 15th. Here we go. Yeah, two days ago. I mean, this is this week is the first week. Perhaps just for, for listeners who either aren't in BC or may not have known, uh, step back a bit in time prior to January 15th. If there was a, because I imagine if, if obviously if there's no dispute over custody of a pet, then all is well. But if in fact there is a dispute, um, and, and I suspect there there have been, obviously, that you've dealt with. Um, how did it, how common were they, and how were they how are they determined? How were they figured out? Right. Well, that's a great question. Um, so, in my twenty three year plus years of practicing animal law, I have seen a precipitous spike in the number of people arguing about their pets. Um, so, this is a, a very common thing. These these battles we call pet custody cases um, are are. You know, after especially after COVID, uh, when a lot of people brought companion animals into their lives during the lockdown, and then after COVID eased off, we saw a situation where people were like, I need a divorce now, but I want to keep the dog, the cat, the rabbit, the gerbils, the fish. So, you know, that's enter. Yeah. Like, it says a lot about us, doesn't it? It says a lot about us. Yeah. Go right? on. Sorry. So... So I, we would get calls at my office, um, uh, you know, and we still do. We get a lot of pet custody inquiries, and we we have for we have for years. I've actually fielded phone calls and been um, helping people as far away as Newfoundland with their pet custody cases and just doing the animal piece part. But before to to get more to your question, uh, prior to January fifteenth in BC, pets were treated in family law situations like property, like any other kind of possession, and so. You know, what we're doing is having these changes come into place, which actually says, hey, your pet is a member of the family. And we're going to look at new considerations for people who cannot figure out on their own or with a lawyer how to keep out of court. But now people going into court to fight over their animal have, uh, you know, the ability to do so knowing that the courts have legislation to look at for the first time and how they can determine who they're going to say gets to live with the pet. Uh, in the past, when these things were determined, I don't know how common it was, but I get the impression from how you're describing it and also what, how important the changes are, that th- these could lead, this could lead to outcomes in the past that weren't, um, how shall we say, that, that weren't ideal. Absolutely. And, and there, were, there, were, there were many of these um, unfavorable or um, negative uh, situations that would happen um, because essentially it would be the person who had, whose name was on the bill of sale or on the adoption papers. Basically, whoever bought the pet got the pet. And oh. so it, it was a situation where, um, you know, there was a lot of inequity. And that's why you have to applaud the government for looking at this. And um, I was one of the people invited to um, give my input on a several occasions and suggest what I thought, you know, might help. And, and so were dozens of others, um, not the least of which, of course, the credit to um, our attorney general for, for being forward thinking and understanding that these laws are now keeping pace by modernizing the Family Law Act. We can look at animals as part of the family. We can look at the relational aspects that an animal has with the whole family. Um, so I can I can explain that whenever you're ready. If, uh, you yeah, yeah, I, I was, the fact- uh, yeah, we 
we can fast forward to Monday now and and, and then yeah. figure it out. So so something that would have say a, a case that would have gone, uh, you know, a, a family law case that would have gone before the courts in December. Here we are now in mid January. What difference would it make now for the adjudicator, so to speak, to be able to to determine where the pet should go? Right, right. And so I will add that now BC small claims courts, provincial courts, and um, the Supreme Court, they both have the jurisdiction to deal with these matters because at the heart of these cases and looking at the law generally, we're looking about cases that involve access to justice. How do people get their cases heard? How do they navigate through the justice system without too, too much fuss, bother, stress and expense? And so these these laws are going to help them. Um, they, by looking at holistic factors that have been enacted now to guide the courts. And I'll just give you a couple of the uh, considerations that courts will look at now. They're going to see each spouse's ability and willingness to care for the family pet, the relationship or bond that a child has with the family pet, and the risk and threat of family violence on humans and pets, because those also go hand in hand. Um, so, this is the sharp contrast to how a case would have looked like prior to January 15th, where really we're just looking at a best ownership test. Now we're looking at something that you could say is closer to a best interest for all concerned type of test. Um, and I think that's, that's, a, that's a very big, that's quite a gestalt of a shift. It is. I mean, it's it's a massive shift to be to go because it, it seems like in the past, if, if if someone had the adoption papers or the ownership papers, regardless of who that may have been, it would be very hard for anyone to argue against their right to own the pet uh, once the the relationship had fallen apart. In this case, there are factors out there that may. I mean, I, I I'm sorry, I, I can't. I'm sure you've dealt with these cases. I can't believe someone would take a pet away from a child who loved the pet, but I gather it happens. Unfortunately, it does. It absolutely does. And you know, so what would happen? is the pet would become weaponized or treated like a pawn um, in, right. in several situations, regardless of, of who really was bonded to the pet or who loved and cared for the pet, who picked up the poop. You know, uh, it, we would, these, these, were, these are highly emotionally charged cases to take. And so um, it's not to say that people are going to head into court more. I think what we're going to see is hopefully people now understanding here are eight factors that a court is going to look at, eight tools. Um, you know, so how the pet was acquired, it's still one of the factors, but it's not the only factor. And, and right. hopefully people can sort out their, their issues and still um, come up with private agreements because um, joint ownership will not be ordered by the court, for example. Aha. So no shared custody. I mean, no Correct. shared custody or no joint ownership. Right. Interesting. Oh, Why would oh, that be? Yeah. Uh, no, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a Interesting. very difficult I, I get, provision. I, too difficult? Too difficult to have shared? Um, I think that there are actually issues sometimes with sharing pets. Now, some people who right. may not have enough experience in this area would think, well, joint custody, that makes sense. It's only fair. Well, actually, if you think about this, Let's say there have been family violence, and it's generally the male perpetrating violence on the woman. That's the experience that most of us have seen in gender-based violence circles. And, mm-hmm. you know, then if they have to have intermittent sharing of the dog, how difficult is that? The woman has to still be in touch with him. 
And, and, you know, there can be flashpoints and weaponizing again can happen and she can be re-traumatized. So you have to look at cases carefully and say, you know, it, it, you know, joint ownership, for example, not great for cats. Most cats um, do not want to be shuttled between two households, things like that. You know, so, so I think when you take a closer look at it, you'll see it's, mm, joint custody isn't always good. But if people do want to enter into a joint custody, they can. They just have to come up with a private agreement. Victoria Schroff is with us this half hour, animal lawyer at Schroff Animal Law in Vancouver, one of Canada's first animal lawyers. We're talking about a big, uh, what she calls a groundbreaking day on uh, earlier this week in British Columbia, where they've changed family law rules around the custody of pets in the event of a separation or a divorce, essentially laying out some new criteria that does not treat pets simply as possessions or as property. Uh, but includes a lot more about sort of the well-being of the pet, the well-being of the pet within the family itself. Um, so, Victoria, when you look at this, I guess, are we waiting for the first, uh, how important are the first cases uh, for something like this in terms of how it's going to be used and interpreted? I don't want to use the word precedent because I'll sound like I don't know what I'm talking about, but uh, I guess once, well, it'll be interesting to see how this is put into practice. Yeah, it will be. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how that gets finessed over time, like any new law when it first comes out. Um, so it's it's going to be um, very interesting to see, particularly cases that are filed at the BC Supreme Court. Um, I know we're gearing up to do some filing, my team and I. Um, not that we're, you know, I don't believe in being overly litigious at the outset, but mm-hmm. I think that some cases do need to end up in court. And now I feel a lot more confident that um, these cases are going to be better streamlined and the parties are going to have a level of assessment of, of these cases that, that was just sort of a bit of a hodgepodge. Um, but I know, I know before the break you were referring to like how this might um, roll out in the rest of Canada. Yeah, um, yeah, that was my next question about, about how this might, because a lot of listeners to this show will be in other parts of the country and might be wondering mm-hmm. how it works where they are and, and how this may, when or if this may land on their doorsteps. Right, right. So, I mean, you know, going back into the common law, as far back as 1980 in Toronto, um, I write about a case uh, called Rogers versus Rogers, where a couple, they were fighting over their dog. And that case, uh, you know, made the the headlines all over the place because it was was one of the earlier, more high-profile cases. But what I wanted to indicate with that was letting people know that these cases are litigated coast to coast, and they are not new. I mean, 1980—that was we're going on about 45 years ago. So you know, yeah. th- they're not new. And you know, I think what also sort of helped shape some of our um, legislative um, sections what came out of the case law in the Maritimes. The Maritimes and Atlantic provinces had some amazing cases. Um, one called Baker versus Harmina, which was a 2018 Newfoundland and Labrador Court of Appeal case. So the top level court uh, looked at pet custody provisions. And I think that case has been a really important case for its dissent. Um, in the end, it, it fell down over the, you know, who, who bought the pet gets the pet scenario. But the dissenting judge said some super interesting things. Um, that resonate with the case law to this day, um, talking about um, the idea that, um, you know, it's it's more nuanced to decide who gets the dog, cat, you know, rabbit, the family pet, than saying who owns should be the person to then be able to keep the pet. Um, so it's, right. it's, a, it's where it started. And I think 
I imagine, um, you know, the way legislation rolls out that we we will start to see hopefully copycat legislation. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it, one would expect so. I mean, people will watch to see how this works here and uh, and try and figure out how to apply it within their own jurisdiction, which would which would make sense to offer some sort of clarity in all this. Uh, Victoria, thank you. You are the one to talk to about this stuff. Uh, I, I'm trying to figure out who got the dog in the Rogers versus Rogers case. I think the dog was called Damon. You've written about it, but uh, this is yeah, that 1980 yeah. case. But I forget. Was it joint custody ultimately? I think, or maybe. Um, yeah. In the end, there there was intermittent access. You're right. Good. good memory right. and you know so so these cases can fall different ways it just so much um you know it's going to be more fact driven as well so i i think that we should uh be pretty happy about this i know that i am anytime we're looking at animals like sentient beings like we are here this is a win for society i mean it like it's it's bigger than people know it's huge well, I, I look forward to seeing. Then? Yeah, no, not at all. Listen, this is something you're passionate about. This stuff, and I cheated. I googled that Rogers versus Rogers thing to find out who it was. I'm glad. I just couldn't I'm spot. Glad. I just spot the word. I spotted spotted the word joint custody. Victoria, I really appreciate your time tonight. Congratulations on this breakthrough milestone, and I look forward to seeing how it uh, how it unfolds in the courts. Sure, happy to chat later. It's time for us to to uh, to delve into a what a journalist is doing and uh, some of the interesting stories they've been working on. And I noticed we've been talking a lot about healthcare of late. And one person we've never had on the show, unfortunately, I don't know how because we should have ages ago, or I should have, is Andre Picard, who's of course the longtime um, health columnist with the Globe and Mail, an award winning journalist, now a recipient of the Order of Canada uh, as of uh, late last year. Uh, and we wanted to talk to him about a few of the things that he's really been touching on these days. And one of them, of course, is the situation in Canada's emergency departments, which has reached crisis levels uh, this winter. I mean, it's been a whole combination of factors, but ER doctors saying it's the worst they've ever seen, calling for real action, as they've been calling for this for a long time, but calling for real action to fix the crisis, plaguing Canada's healthcare system writ large. Uh, The Canadian Medical Association released a statement last week saying, unless major systemic changes are made, the problem in emergency de- emergency departments will keep unfolding. So we dug into this topic a little bit. We had a great guest on last Friday, Dr. Jill McEwen, who is an attending emergency physician at Vancouver's General Hospital and a past president of the Canadian Association of Emergency Physicians. And here's what she had to say. It was busy back 30, 35 years ago, but it's just gradually gotten worse and worse and worse to the point where now it's, um, I feel like we're going down a ski slope and picking up momentum and things are going to get horribly worse than they even are now. And it's it's very bad now. Well, as I mentioned, my next guest has spent decades keeping a very close eye on Canada's healthcare system from right across the country, provincially, nationally, and so on, as the longtime health columnist for the Globe and Mail. He is the author of several books, including his most recent, Neglected No More, about fixing the country's chronic issues with long-term care. And as I mentioned, he is a recent recipient of the Order of Canada. Uh, Andre Picard joins me now from Vancouver. Andre, thank you so much. Welcome. Hi. Well, never a dull moment, obviously, uh, when it comes to covering and watching healthcare in this country. And a few topics have been very heated lately. But one of them that's, that mightn't be a surprise at this time of year is the crisis in Canadian emergency departments. I spoke with a physician last week from uh, Vancouver General Hospital who said it was the worst she'd seen in 36 years. And she said it felt like a skier going downhill and picking up speed. Is that what you're seeing? Is that your sense? 
Yeah, I've been doing this for almost 40 years, and it's certainly the worst I've seen. You know, there's always a bump in the winter because of respiratory viruses, but uh, ER was already bad. It was already overcrowded before the infectious disease season started, and it's just uh, it's a crisis from coast to coast, unfortunately. What are you seeing in terms of the response? Because I know Quebec's health minister was out telling people not to go to ERs over the holidays. We've heard some of that sort of echoes of that same language from other spots. What is exacerbating this and what's the wrong response? Well, I think the wrong response is definitely to tell people to stay home, but you want them to get care in the in the right place at the right time. And I think, you know, the, the crisis in ER is not caused by ER. It's caused by a whole number of other things, uh, largely the, the lack of access to primary care. You know, we have 6.5 million Canadians without a family doctor. Uh, we have shortages of beds for uh, long-term care, lack of home care, so people get backed up. You know, the number one problem in ER is not people coming in with minor ailments. It's not being able to move people into hospital who are really sick. So if you visit any ER, I visit them all over the country all the time. There's always a dozen, you know, beds sitting there waiting to be older people sitting in a hallway waiting for a room. And that that's the real crisis. That's the choke point. So there's so many issues that have to be dealt with. And ER is really just kind of the, the canary in the coal mine telling us how bad things are elsewhere. What I find interesting and, 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 and depressing at the same time is that these are stories that I remember covering when I first started out as a reporter in Montreal back in the late 90s. You know, we were talking about sort of nursing shortages and they would have that those ER wait times they would post every day and sometimes they would go into the red zone and so on. I mean, this is not a problem that people are unfamiliar with or unaware of. And yet 2024, here we are, and it seems like it's worse than ever. Yeah, it's not a new problem, but it's cumulative. You know, it just gets worse because we're not dealing with the underlying problem. So we have severe labor shortages, so it's much worse than in the 90s. Uh, we have fewer beds. Uh, we have an aging population. Uh, we have a pandemic. There's a whole number of things that have made it, have made it much, much worse than a, than a couple of decades ago, where this was a it was a seasonal problem. It would come up and we never had enough surge capacity. We never dealt with that. But now it's a chronic problem and that's much, much worse. What are you seeing on the political side then? Because I know there were meetings with premiers in the fall. It sounded like something, it felt like there was momentum building on this file. And I know this is something you've seen again and again and again and again, uh, but it felt like there was momentum, at least recognition of the issues that were happening here. There were a lot of articles out. You had written about it extensively. What's happened? Where, where is the political will now? It feels like they've been caught off guard yet again. Well, I think what what's disturbing is there's shockingly little being done that's obvious. There's a lot of inertia. There's a lot of, uh, you know, gnashing of teeth, but uh, there's not a lot going on. The, the obsession of premiers over the last few years has been, oh, we need more money. Uh, they've got a lot more money. Uh, they're spending more provincially. The feds have pumped in a bunch of money. They've signed agreements, but that money doesn't seem to be being used properly to, to solve problems. So it's very, very frustrating, I think, for the public and especially for healthcare workers to see that just the, the lack of action from policymakers and from politicians. Which is surprising because I can tell just by looking at the algorithms on the Global Mail and so on, people care about healthcare. They care deeply about healthcare. And yet, every time an election rolls along, we talk about it a bit, but it never seems to be the kind of issue that is make or break for politicians, whether it be the LTC issues over the pandemic. It certainly didn't hurt Doug Ford or François Legault. I mean, these are, it doesn't seem, politicians don't seem to pay the price for a, a, a crumbling healthcare system. They don't ever seem to do much about it. 
Yeah, that's been a chronic issue, I think, is people don't make it a ballot box issue. But I think that's that's what's changing now. I think we are at this tipping point. Uh, we've seen elections in, in Manitoba and Nova Scotia provincially where health was the number one issue. The party with the best health platform won, uh, regardless of what, you know, one was NDP, one was Conservative, but they both had strong health platforms. If I was an Ontario or a Quebec premier, I would be really worried about the next election because they're not they're not delivering on health care and the public is really starting to to make this their number one ballot box issue. How much has that changed over the years? Because I know you've written about it and people pay a lot of attention to, to what you've had to say. Uh, and yet I, it must feel at times like you were shouting into the wind. Yeah, I think I've always I've said for many years it was a frustration that people kind of accepted mediocrity in healthcare. We kind of go, oh, it's free, so it's okay if we wait. But I think that that attitude is changing. Things are so bad now that people are saying we're going to vote for something better. And they've always sort of held their nose and, you know, voted on potholes or the economy or whatever, all things that are important. You know, housing is important. The economy is important. Inflation, these things matter. But ultimately, if you don't have health, if you don't have access to health care, everything else becomes secondary. And I think that's starting to to shift the political conversation. I only know this anecdotally, having lived in the UK, but if you cast your eyes further afield to other places that have national health care, such as we do or universal health care, are they facing similar issues? I don't remember the issues being, I don't remember there being coverage. I mean, there's always coverage of the NHS in the UK, but it's different kind of coverage. They talk about quality of care and so on. They suffer through some of the same issues, but it never feels as acute as here. I know the system is different with provincial and, and, and federal, but uh, it never feels as acute in other places with universal health care as it does here. And I wonder if that's true. Yeah, I get to travel around a lot. I, I was uh, not too long ago traveling around the Nordic countries. And, you know, everybody has these similar issues like the uh, shortage of workers is a universal problem. But nobody has Canada's inertia. So the, uh, there's a lot more accountability, I think, in other countries. And I think that's why they deal with their problems. They've modernized their systems. Canada's systems really stuck in the 1950s. It hasn't changed appreciably, but the world of medicine has changed. The demographics have changed radically. And we're just we're just falling behind year after year. And there has to be some, some radical changes pretty quickly uh, or the system will just continue to crumble. Do you have any concerns that the system crumbling is going to lead to an appetite or even an acceptance of more privatization of the system instead of fixing what we already have? I think that's a part of an issue, but I think we in Canada, we kind of obsess a little bit too much about private care. To me, I've been saying this for many years, I think we have to decide what the public system can cover and then do it well. And there's privatization in every health system in the world. But the difference is they're very clear on what's covered and what isn't. And we've never done that in Canada. If we have a strong uh, publicly funded Medicare system that covers the essentials, that's what we need. And that's what other countries have. And the other stuff sorts itself out on the margins. But uh, Canada just never has these essential uh, fundamental debates. We, we just kind of have this rhetoric about, well, private is bad, public is good. But, uh, you know, we have the least universal healthcare system in the world. Our system covers very little compared, say, to Sweden or Norway or France. Uh, we don't cover very much. So we have to talk about, well, what? how do we have a good public system? And we have to worry less about uh, creeping privatization, as people call it. If you have Canada drugs, the same drug costs 25% of what it costs here. We want Floridians to be able to share um, in, those, in those discounts. 
Audrey Picard, the Global Mail's longtime health columnist, is with us this half hour. We're talking about health issues, things he's written about in the past little while. Uh, something, Audrey, that got a lot of attention, we talked about it on the show um, about a week and a half ago, was the FDA approving Florida's plan, quote-unquote, to buy less expensive drugs from Canada. And, of course, I mean, everyone came out and said, well, we can't be Florida's pharmacy. I mean, it's not going to happen at all. Uh, but what your reaction to it, because the FDA, this has been brewing for a long time, and the FDA had always kind of stood in the way of these kinds of ideas. Yeah, so the FDA, I think, uh, is really just a technical ruling. It's essentially saying that, yes, importing drugs from Canada would be safe. They've always right. kind of had this fiction that, oh, well, maybe we're going to get counterfeit drugs if we buy them from Canada. That That's nonsense. It always has been. So Florida has taken this and said, well, then we're going to buy drugs from Canada. And that's a whole different issue. You know, the FDA doesn't have much to do in this. So the issue is we have price regulation. We negotiate with pharmacies, pharma companies for drug prices. Florida doesn't do that. And they're kind of taking a backdoor uh, instead of regulating, instead of negotiating themselves, which is what they should be doing, like every country in the world. They're sort of saying, oh, we're going to take the easy way out. We're just going to let uh, buy cheap drugs from Canada. But it's not it's not going to work for a whole host of reasons. Yeah, it was interesting because there was a survey cited, I think, when this decision was made that a vast majority of Americans surveyed, at least, thought this was a really good idea. Like, of course, why not? Forget taking on big pharma in America. Let's go buy them in Canada. Why not? They did this work already. Uh, I guess it sort of falls into that whole idea of, again, like cross-border shopping for milk, right? But this is not the same at all. But the mentality is sort of similar for the American consumer to some extent. I think that's why it's been such an appealing political argument, because people buy it. And that's what it is. It's really just political posturing. You know, of course, if you did a poll here, do we want cheaper drug prices? Of course we do. But then the question becomes, how do you do it? And most people don't have that level of knowledge to recognize that, oh, yeah, I guess it's simple. Just buy it in Canada and not think about, well, why are drugs cheaper in Canada? Why are they half the price of the U.S.? Because we have rules uh, and because we have, you know, domestic rules that prevent us from exporting. So it it's not going to happen, but I think it's probably served uh, the the governor of Florida well uh, politically. Yeah. What are what does stand in the way? Because clearly the health minister has been out saying this is not going to happen. Canada doesn't really have an abundance of, of far, as we well know here, because we suffer through periodic shortages as well. We don't have an abundance of supply to start handing stuff out or at least sharing a ton of it with a, a, you know, a place the size of Florida, which is nearly as big as Canada population wise. What does stand in the way then here from Floridians accessing or at least the, the state of Florida accessing uh, Canadian pharmaceuticals in that way? Well, the big one is the pharma companies are all global companies. Most of them are American. Uh, even the ones in Canada that make drugs here are American companies. They're not going to essentially cut off their nose to spite their face and sell their drugs uh, half the price they do domestically. So they're just not going to allow it. Uh, Canadian regulation doesn't allow it. And then price regulation is done domestically. So those are two very different things that aren't, aren't really connected. Uh, so the, the pharma companies aren't going to allow it. The Canadian government's not going to allow it. Practically, we can't do it. We don't have the manufacturing capacity. We actually make very few drugs here. So, you know, imagine uh, we import these drugs from the U.S. and then we sell them back at half the price they sell them there. The company is just not going to, that's just not going to fly. Right. And it's interesting that America, I mean, there's probably a lot of reasons, probably some, some pretty easy to identify reasons for this. But it's interesting that the, America has never taken on big pharma considering the, the sheer weight of their 
even their Medicaid system and, and all the, I mean, if a country like Canada could do it and smaller countries can do it, surely America could do it too if it decided to. Yeah, they're great believers in the free market that they should just allow manufacturers to sell what the market will bear. And the reality is the American market will bear quite a bit. Uh, other countries don't think exactly like that with very few uh, free market economies the way there is in the U.S. And in some ways, you know, to, to be fair on this debate, in many ways, the U.S. subsidizes cheaper drug prices around the world because right. – you know, the vast majority of sales are in the U.S., 55, 60 percent of all drug income revenues globally for, from the U.S. So that allows them to, you know, the drugs cost nothing in South Africa, some drugs. That's a good thing. Uh, that happens in part because drugs are expensive in the U.S. Uh, Canada's, you know, it's a hiccup. It's a 5 percent of the global market. If the prices are lower, the companies don't get too worked up about that. Uh, they also invest a lot. There's a lot of research and development in the U.S. So it's not a simple, simple question. But my point I was making in my column is if you want cheaper prices, then you have to do it domestically. You can't just uh, pilfer the neighbors. Yeah, as tempting as that may be. What did you make of this whole of the whole Turkish Tylenol thing in, in Alberta? That was an interesting one. I don't know how much attention you paid to it, but it was a reminder again, because it, it sort of I, I associated with this because we suffer from shortages in this country. And sometimes what's politically expedient doesn't work out. And uh, and it can, it can be very expensive and very embarrassing for a province such as Alberta in this case. Yeah, I think that case was very embarrassing. It happened during COVID. Again, it was this is what happens when you uh, politically posture and, and you think you can find a simplest a uh, simplistic solution to a complex problem that uh, goes back to the Tylenol shortage, which had a number of underlying reasons, mostly about the lack of basic products used to make Tylenol, which come from China and India. So we had a shortage in Canada. Uh, Alberta got up on its high horse said, we're going to buy it from Turkey. Well, it wasn't good product. Uh, they had, you know, they couldn't source the material either. So they sold us essentially crap. And uh, now it's come back to, I, I think, bite the premier. But I think, yeah, there is a lesson there that uh, drug shortages are, are complex. Uh, you have to be careful about uh, where you buy from. You know, buying from Turkey is very different. Canada buying from Turkey is very different from the U.S. buying from Canada. We have similar regulations. Uh, Turkey doesn't. I have no I have no doubt that some experts who are often disdained these days must have said exactly that when this plan came up. Oh, I think uh, it was universally panned. Everybody said, this is ridiculous. You're you're not going to get good Tylenol. There's no Tylenol in the world right now. We're going to have to wait till it's solved. Well, Andre, thank you so much for your insight. Much appreciated. Thanks. Always a pleasure to chat. It is deadline night uh, for many businesses, small businesses, particularly across the country, who took out uh, interest-free loans during the pandemic. Uh, this was the time. Tomorrow is the day to repay them uh, early, so to speak, or to pay them on time and take advantage of some forgiveness that was built in to that particular timing. In fact, it was moved back just slightly. There had been a lot of pressure on the Liberal government, to the federal government, over the course of the summer to push this back a bit, because initially it was at the end of the year, at the end of 2023, on December 31st, and they pushed it back a few weeks uh, to January 18th. That's not a lot of time, though, for a lot of businesses out there that now face uh, having to pay back, in some cases, as much as $60,000 that was borrowed interest-free 
really just to keep afloat at a very tough time. If you think back, almost 900,000 businesses and nonprofits received a Canada Emergency Business Account, or CBA, loan during the pandemic. Uh, again, getting up to $60,000 in interest free loans. Um, and again, tomorrow's the deadline for businesses to repay them to receive partial forgiveness. Now, uh, business groups say that this tight deadline and the inability of some businesses or many businesses to take advantage of this loan forgiveness uh, will be a real tough blow to uh, a small business community in this country that's already uh, you know, having things just have not come back. The whole timing of this was meant to suggest that you know, businesses would be back now to where they were in 2019. And that, in many cases, simply hasn't happened. So this is, in many ca- in many ways, blood from a stone. Why the federal government hasn't been more flexible on this, I don't know. Uh, perhaps they should have been. I mean, this is a big part. Small businesses are an integral part of our community. I live in downtown Victoria. When a small business goes, you feel it, right? I mean, you know that it's gone and a little piece of your community goes with it. Uh, right now, I'm joined by one of the business owners who has faces this uh, dilemma tonight. Tamara uh, Novakowski, or Novakowski rather, is the owner of the Delish General Store and Jar Bar Refillery in Vancouver. Tamara, thank you for your time tonight. Hi, Ben. Thanks for having me. Tell me a bit about the store, just how, how you built it up and, and, and how you got to tonight in 2024. Oh, my. It's a long story, Ben. I was actually a journalist for 20 years, so I was sort of where you are. I was a radio and TV personality, I suppose, reporter, certainly host. Um, And then um, I was supposed to go back to the radio, and I had my son early at 28 weeks of gestation, so he derailed my media career, (laughs) and it was completely okay and well worth it. That was 14 years ago. Um, I started Delish General Store as Delish Magazine. Um, Really, I was crib side um, or incubator side in the NICU when I had my boy, and I was alternately terrorized and bored, so I started an online magazine. And three years later, I turned it into an online store. And from there, I really grew very slowly to eventually have a brick-and-mortar shop on Granville Island. And um, it grew from there, and it's morphed from there over the years into different iterations. Tell me a bit about about this period uh, during when everything was shut or when you found yourself needing uh, the SIBA loan that was on offer and how important it was to access that money when you did. Right. It was a, it was a lifesaver. Um, for a lot of businesses, COVID kind of meant that they had to shut down. And in early 2020, I had just morphed or, or pivoted my business from really a gift store offering local artisan-made uh, products over to a soap refillery. I just felt like my experience as a, you know, a farm girl and a communications expert in, in um, environmental nonprofits, as well as being a reporter, I just sort of thought this trend was really looming, that retail meeting refill made a lot of sense. And so I morphed into this type of business in 2020, brought in bulk soap, having made a huge investment in these uh, 20 liter pails of all kinds of soap for home and bath and body and everything. And then COVID hit and everything was shutting down and and nobody knew what to do. And I would have actually been very well positioned to, in a sense, take advantage of this time because I drove an electric car and I was willing to do um, home deliveries. So I marketed marketed it as contact-free, emission-free delivery, which made so much sense for what I was doing, trying to save plastic waste for the average consumer and offering healthier products. 
And, you know, it was um, it was it was a good campaign. I was really well poised to do that on the North Shore. And then, unfortunately, it it, uh, coincided with some issues in the building that I was renting. And that ended up being six months of just a real terrible time. And then um, I was also not able to open my doors because a couple of months into the pandemic, they did make the recommendation that small business should shut their doors. So this was a lifeline for me. I had lost the ability to recoup um, the investment that I made into the soaps because of what was happening in my building. And then all of a sudden I couldn't even invite people into the building because of what the government was doing and my landlord. So I absolutely Ah. needed that money. And as we move forward a little bit, I mean, I I think we didn't know what was going to happen when things started to open up again. I think there was a hope that for a lot of businesses, things would return to normal. I mentioned earlier, I'm in Victoria. You know, a wander around downtown Victoria will tell you that other other than at the height of summer when there are lots of tourists here, that simply hasn't happened. It just hasn't happened yet for a lot of businesses. It's just not, it's clearly, it's identifiably not as busy as it used to be. And I'm wondering if that's the case for you too. Well, it is because um, I think having switched over to soap, I think mm-hmm. I do have a little bit more of a luxury of not being a gift shop. But even then, I can say that, you know, our Christmas sales every year would really see the way through to paying off bills and keeping us operating when it was very slow for three to six months, the first quarter to the first half of the year. And uh, 2019 was our best Christmas ever. And 2020, it started to go downhill. And last year was our very worst ever. This year, it felt like we crawled out of the pit just a little bit. But people are changing. Consumer behaviors have absolutely changed. So even if traffic is up in terms of feet in the door, they are not spending as much as they used to because we're all scared. None of us have extra money. Right. Uh, nobody saw this economic downturn coming and this, these raise, rising prices of absolutely everything from the food to the transportation to insurance and rent, all of those things. None of us saw this coming. I know you would have had December 31st circled on your calendar. In fact, I think I read a CBC interview that you did where you did have December 31st circled on your calendar. That became January 18th, which is now tomorrow. To take advantage of repaying this SIBA loan, uh, I think in your case it was about 50000 early, mm-hmm. and take advantage of, of, of the loan forgiveness, which is about 33%. It's pretty significant. Uh, how likely is that to happen, and, and what's it been like trying to trying to make it happen? Well. I I don't want to paint a colorful picture, but I could barf. I actually feel nauseous. I'm oh. up at three in the morning every night because I'm I'm just I'm trying to find an answer that's not coming to me. I'm not going to be able to pay this off. And so I was offered refinancing with you know one of those specialty lenders that opened up to try to help people repay their SIBA. And I just can't accept the repayment um, terms. There's no way. It's like like you said in your intro. It's blood from a stone. There's no way I could accept even the minimum repayment back to them, which was a couple of thousand a month. You know, I, I incurred extra debts on top of SIBA just to remain operational um, and to handle the rising cost of absolutely everything. So I don't, I don't know what my options are. I'm, I have to obviously speak to my lender. Um, we're going to, you know, talk about how I will repay, and it's going to be the entire amount. It has to be. I, tomorrow's the deadline, and I can't do it. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess at this case, so listeners understand, if I get this right, the debt's then converted into a three-year loan with a 5% annual interest rate, which is not 
terrible, but again, it's money that, you know, it's extra money to pay back over a fairly short period of time. Uh, were you surprised that, that the federal government wasn't a little more flexible? I mean, I know they pushed it back a little bit, but clearly everyone understands that small businesses are struggling right now, and this just wasn't a, an extra burden that they needed. I, I was just surprised they didn't relent on this one, to be honest. I was as well. And I don't want to complain. You know, there's that thing of like maybe being Canadian, maybe being a woman, maybe just, you know, being grateful for what you got. And I think people who aren't in business sometimes make those sorts of comments where it's like, well, you had you saw this coming. You should have known you should have planned. But how can one plan to pay back when sales have dipped to their absolute lowest that they've ever been? And, you know, I'm contemplating getting a job on the side of having my business or what kind of side gig I can do so that I can work all the extra hours that I have in the day, which are dedicated to sleeping. Um, Yeah. I, I, I'm surprised. I actually really thought that something would be offered. Small business represents so much to the community and it's so much more than just kind of like the intangible, the, the nice feel and the look and, and, you know, the look of when you walk down the street, it represents money that stays in the community Versus the multinationals, we actually bring back more $63 from each $100 is recirculated into the BC economy versus $14 for multinational corporations. And that was from bcbylocal.com. They know this stuff inside and out. And, you know, I have to believe that those stats are real. And with every single closure, we lose a little bit more. We lose our culture, we lose our community, and we lose that money that stays here in our neighborhood with our neighbors and with the kids that we hire locally. Yeah. And we lose a little piece of a dream too. I'll confess I've never had the courage to do what you did. And so I'm always very impressed by it. Well, I mean, at this point it doesn't look like it was the best decision <laughs> to tell you the <laughs> truth. I think what, what would have happened if I had just stayed in the media, stayed the course. Well, yeah. Uh, it's, yeah. I'm not yeah. sure. Well, Tamara, I, 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 you know, obviously I wish you all the best and I, I, I hope this works out with your lender. And so I hope there's some flexibility there somewhere uh, once this converts into a loan and so forth. But um, yeah, a good luck to you. And thank you for sharing your story with me tonight. I really appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity, Ben, and for the well wishes. We are now far enough from the pandemic that we do have to wrap up uh, pandemic programs. Uh, Businesses have uh, a number of different options uh, if they're facing challenges around the SIBA loans. The Prime Minister asked today, of course, about this deadline coming up tomorrow for small businesses to repay their SIBA loans that they received during the pandemic, up to $60,000. If they repay them by tomorrow or have financing in place by tomorrow to repay them, uh, which will delay it for a little bit, uh, they'll be given loan forgiveness of about 33%, which is a big deal uh, if you look at at the amount of money people borrowed. My previous guest, uh, Tamara Nowakowski, borrowed about $50,000. She can't repay it. Uh, She can't agree to it. She can't sort of fight she can't afford the terms that were offered to her by a lender so it looks like she's going to have to move into that other category whereby it transforms into a three-year uh loan at five percent interest right which is which if you if you're struggling to if your business is struggling to survive uh that's not you don't want to pass up this loan forgiveness opportunity so why didn't what alternatives are there out there right now and why didn't the government back down a little bit. David Gens is founder and CEO of Merchant Growth in Vancouver, and he joins me now. David, thanks so much for your time on this tonight. I appreciate you having me on. 
I suspect you've been getting some stressed, some anxious phone calls over the past little while as this deadline nears, because I know if people have some financing in place to pay back this loan, that deadline's actually extended. Yeah. In fact, if you just have applied for refinancing with your host bank or credit union that your SIBA is technically with, then you actually get all the way till March 28th. Uh, so you just need to apply. You don't necessarily have to take the financing they offer you. They might not offer, they might not, you know, approve you for that financing. But as long as you kind of got that application in by tomorrow, then uh, that buys you some more time to get that forgiveness. I noticed there's been a, a big push out there for um, lenders to try to help out businesses in some ways. I mean, I know it's not all that, it's not altruistic necessarily, but it is a bit of a win-win if uh, lenders can take adva- lenders can help businesses take advantage of this forgiveness that's built in to paying back early. Yeah, I mean, the math is quite straightforward in terms of getting... Uh, you know, a third of your loan forgiven. Most uh, SIBA borrowers took 60000 and they can get rid of that loan for 40000 And, uh, you know, if you're not able to get financing from your bank or credit union, there's alternatives out there. There's non-bank lenders out there, fintech companies like our own Merchant Growth that's uh, making a big push on this. And, uh, you know, there's still just such a significant amount of savings that even if you have to pay a little bit more for that capital, you're in a net, uh, you know, much better off position by getting that forgiveness. Yeah, I guess you're better off paying a slightly higher percentage at forty thousand than paying five percent on sixty thousand, right? Over, uh, over a certain period of time. What what has been? What has the response been like? Are you are you? I mean, this has been anecdotal, I think, in a lot of ways. But are you hearing from a lot of people who are really struggling to figure out how to pay to take advantage of this loan forgiveness? Yeah, definitely. Like you, you know, you you asked uh, earlier, and I kind of skipped over my answer, but uh, about you know what have I been seeing lately, and it's been a, a real exponential scramble, especially in the last couple of weeks. Uh, you know, you played that clip of Justin Trudeau kind of confirming that this is final, and they're not going to make any further changes to the dates and so forth of this program. But that clarity, you know, really just came recently. I just said that the other day. Um, you know, lobbyists were trying to push the dates around uh, as recently as uh, as you know um, uh, around New Year's. So. Um, as a result, a lot of folks were kind of holding out hope, hoping for that those changes to maybe come through. And as a result, you know, a lot of people haven't dealt with it um, until just now. So it's been an incredible exponential sort of scramble, like I said. Yeah, uh, we interviewed uh, someone with the CFIB, I think, about a week and a half ago, and, and it's not that they were confident about there being a change, but they were still somewhat hopeful that they might be able to get to convince the federal government to to push this back a little further. I, I know you're not, you're not with the CFIB and you're not a politician, but I was just a bit surprised that there wasn't more flexibility here from the federal government, given what you're hearing, what we've heard from small business owners as well, that uh, that this is this is going to be onerous for a lot of for a lot of businesses. Yeah, I, 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 I think there's, you know, other angles to this too, right? And, and uh, uh, you know, of course, there's some businesses struggling. Uh, and, uh, um, you know, that, that's kind of always the case. There's always some business models that, that are, you know, were viable or no longer viable. It's a competitive world out there. Um, and, and the pandemic certainly had a, a hard effect there. But there's real costs to moving that deadline again, and right. and you know there was an estimate of 907 million if it was if that early forgiveness deadline was moved by another year. You also have inflation still being a problem, uh, you know, still top of mind for for our, our central bank, and, and this is just a great way for uh, government to get a bunch of money out of the system and bring that inflation down. Uh, extending the deadline f- further would be an inflationary move. 
Um, and, and so there's there's a number of different kind of push and pull factors here. And, and you know, obviously uh, the budget and balancing the budgets in focus, too. Um, and so, you know, government's eager to get some of this money back from this pandemic program. Yeah. And when you look at it, I mean, the three-year, converting it into a three-year loan at 5% is not, I mean, if you can't take advantage of the of the forgiveness, I, I gather the assumption was that a majority of businesses would, uh, but that if they, if, if the three-year 5% isn't, isn't terrible, I mean, for, for anyone who's borrowed money these days, that's not a terrible rate. Yeah, it, it's, uh, it's, it's interest only um, yeah. uh, until the end of 2026, but it is, uh, you know, a bullet payment. In, in other words, the entire, you know, 60,000, if you're in the 60,000 camp on SIBA, uh, is due at the end of 2026. So business owners right. need to be thinking about, you know, how do I set aside money, uh, you know, every month until, uh, you know, the end of 2026 to kind of have this dealt with, or, or do I have another option to sort of refinance in 2026? So, um, you know, it, it, it is something that you, you definitely want to still be mindful of and planning for. And, and certainly if, uh, if your business generates good revenue, like now's the time to really look at, uh, refinancing options, you know, the deadline's tomorrow, but we're still open for business. It, our, we, we only take five, five, ten minutes to get an applicant through our process, and, and we're funding people instantly using uh, Interact so they get their money right away. So we're, uh, we're like right down to the wire, going to be helping people all the way to tomorrow night, and then, you know, certainly looking to help more folks as we get to the March date as well. Well, David, thanks for sharing uh, your experience, uh, for your, your angle of this, because it's an interesting and multifaceted story. I appreciate it tonight. Yeah, cheers. Thanks for having me on. He is one of Canada's most noted and celebrated journalists and commentators. His history in this country begins in 1967, just as Canada is celebrating its centennial, a coming of age for both country and new arrival. Haroon Siddiqui had already trained and worked as a journalist in India when he made the decision to move to Canada at the age of 25. Uh, after meeting then High Commissioner to India and soon-to-be Governor General Roland Michener, who suggested he should come here because it was a great place to be. Siddiqui would land in Toronto before moving to Brandon, Manitoba a year later to start his Canadian journalism career at the Brandon Sun, considered to be at the time one of the best smaller town papers in the country. Um, he would wind up spending a decade in Manitoba working as a reporter and editor before returning east to work for the Toronto Star, where he spent 30 years. He would work as a foreign affairs analyst, columnist, national editor, editorial page editor. He was a national newspaper award winner. It goes on and on and on, a practicing Muslim and a visible minority, uh, when that was still very rare in Canadian newsrooms, can be still, uh, Siddiqui would bring a very different perspective to the major stories of the day, tackling a wide range of issues from world affairs and Canada's place in the world to Canadian identity and multiculturalism. He's put it all down, this incredible journey of his, in a new book called My Name is Not Harry. It's a memoir. Uh, Haroon Siddiqui is editorial page editor emeritus now of the Toronto Star, a senior fellow at Massey College, a member of the Order of Canada, and the book, again, is called My Name is Not Harry. Haroon, thank you so much for your time tonight. My pleasure. Tell me a bit about the book. It's always, I mean, you've done a lot of writing over the years. It must have been a challenge to sit down and put it all in one place. No, it was a bigger challenge than I thought it would be because as a journalist, you are trained to take yourself out of the equation. You're writing about issues. You're analyzing issues. You're talking to other people. This is I, I, I business. What, what, what is that? How do you do it? And good old Ron Graham, the great author, uh, nephew of uh, good old uh, Bill Graham, mm -hmm. gave a great tip. I said, he said, um, write about yourself as though you're reporting on someone else. 
and you will find your voice. Right. So I hope I did. Yeah. Did you find out anything you didn't want to know, or was it? Uh... <laughs> no, no. So the second thing was that um, uh, how do you write a memoir? Memoir becomes a me, me, me. How great I was with the wonderful, great things I did. So someone else gave another tip. He said, you know, write about the issues that you covered, uh, and retrospect is a good thing. Uh, and 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 pawing over old ground is not all that bad if you bring a new perspective and remind people of what where we were and where we have come. So in effect, it became a really a love letter to Canada. <clears throat> I came in '67. Yeah. Uh, and then over the years, we have seen this enormous sea change for the better. Uh, we have become from um, a white majority Christian country and assumed to be white uh, Christian. It's now fully understood that we are a white majority country, white uh, Christian majority country, but it's a multicultural country. We have a multicultural act. We have section 27 of the charter. Everyone is equal. Group rights um, are as important as individual rights. Um, and this is, a, this is an enormous change. Uh, and at a time, when the uh, color line is the fault line across the West, uh, United States, the horror from Mexico border, um, the French and everyone across Europe um, worrying about Eurabia coming and yeah. Sharia coming and so on. Even Scandinavia these days, which even we look Even Scandinavia, back. everywhere, yep. the right-wing parties are running on anti-immigration. Um, Mr. Sunak, the Prime Minister of Great Britain, supposedly a uh, pragmatic consultant type uh, is pushing this bill to send refugees to God knows where in Africa. You know, Rwanda. Canada, yeah. Rwanda, yeah. not Rwanda, or is it some mm. other place? Anyway, Canada is the only place where a national consensus on immigration holds. Um, and right now, there are reservations because of cost of housing, cost of uh, living, inflation, and so on and so forth. But it has not crossed the line into people saying we don't want immigration because we don't want brown people or, or non-white people. That consensus is still holds. And the concerns that are being expressed at this point are legitimate concerns of e economic and so on and so forth. Right. Um, so we, we are blessed in this country on yeah, balance. How to, how to make it better as opposed to how to get rid of it altogether, right? That's Correct. sort of, the, that's sort of <clears throat> the impression I get. I always, I, I, clearly you would know, I mean, I wasn't born in 1967 or I was about to be, but what a pinnacle year in this country's history and what an incredible time to arrive here. Uh, and yet you saw a part of the country, you wound up after working in Toronto for a while at different stuff, including working at Simpsons, which uh, I think all of us have worked in the clothing industry at some point in our lives. Um, if you but... work at a clothing industry and if you're a young man, you become the best dressed young man around, one of the best around. So yeah. I was... I was fully and lovely, nicely dressed for most of the time, yes. Right, and then you arrive in Brandon, where I have no doubt, Brandon, Manitoba, no doubt that a lot of those clothes that would have been really functional in Toronto Very probably, good. probably weren't so functional in, in Brandon at the time. <laughs> no, no, Brandon was, was a lovely experience. I mean, there's a story behind it, you know. I mean, I when I'd come to Toronto, of course, I canvassed every major newspaper, including the Globe and Mail, where the legendary managing editor, Clark Davy said, um, no job for you because you have no Canadian experience. And I, of course, being young and impertinent, argued with him, you know, I, these are portable skills I have brought from India because I was a journalist there. He said, no, 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 you go and get Canadian experience. And he said, I know just the place you should go to. And where is that? He said, Brandon, son, it's a great paper. I said, that's colder than Toronto, for God's sake. Where are you sending me? He said, no, no, but 
of course, I disagreed with him and I walked out in a half. But when I left his building, I had the sense that he was one of those uh, gruff uncles who is dishing out tough love. You know, he's a good guy. Uh, and in defiance, I tried everything, Toronto Star, Telegram, everyone, every one of them rejected me, including the Perth Courier, which is a small paper. I still have that uh, rejection letter. In your Ottawa, them. yeah. You kept the rejection letters. You kept, of course, you kept the rejection letters. You keep our rejection letters because they remind you, uh, <laughs> I keep you modest, you see. Indeed. Um, and then I worked at Simpsons, having got no other job. And eight months later, I said, this is not working. So I phoned Mr. Davey and said, maybe it's time to make the phone call. And lo and behold, um, without hesitation, he said, of course, I'll make the phone call, you know, and he made the call and I was in Brandon. I arrived at the Brandon Sun on a Saturday, I think. And the grizzled old uh, news editor, Garth Stufer said, um, I hope you know what frontage foot is. I said, I have no idea what that means. He said, you better learn it because as of Monday, you're covering city council. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. And I'd, I'd gone there for a year, but I ended up staying 10. It was a lovely community. Uh, people are reserved, but once they get to know you, uh, they befriend you. And, yeah. uh, and, and and extreme weather always forges bonds in people, you know. Um, if you ever have the misfortune to have a malfunctioning car in minus 30, the next car going will inevitably stop and help you. That's the greatness of those people. Yeah. I, city council, I think we all, we've all covered city council. You stayed for 10. And it's interesting because I, I always found working uh, local brought a very different responsibility. One that's very, very important when you're learning to do this job for a living or perfecting the, or getting better at this job. Yes. And that's, and that's accountability <laughs> because you often have to bump into the people that you're reporting about or reporting on. <laughs> and that teaches you something very valuable about, about getting it right, getting the balance right. And also the, the cost in your case, of course, the cost of sometimes swimming against, uh, swimming against the tide. That was not so much so in Brandon <clears throat> because I was mostly reporting and so on. Just to finish your thought here, you see, in those, not only in small towns, but across Canada, there used to be a thing that um, you had an adversarial relationship with the people that you were reporting because that was your job. You were not their friends. But once uh, in retirement and so on, or once you were off that beat, you became friends. Um, all the people you reported on uh, remained my friends for a very long time. That used to be true of politicians as well, you know. Um, they were adversaries, but they were not enemies. I mean, that unfortunately is going now. It's gone. Um, the current leader of the Conservative Party of Canada blames Mr. Trudeau for everything. It did not, the sun did not rise today. Oh, Justin's fault, you know. It's snowing. It is Justin Snow. What yeah. is this? You know, you can't imagine them having a beer together. As Jacques Chrétien was saying after Ed Broadbent passed last week, he was saying, "Oh, you know, back in the day, we would fight in Parliament, and then we would go have a beer together, right?" Well, you know, together, I can't imagine kind of, that today. No. Yeah, no. That's what's happening. Is um, in that sense, uh, we need to remind ourselves in this country of our red lines that we used to have, because it gave rise to a civic society, um, unlike the United States. And a lot of people say, "No, just put it another way." Historically, we have defined ourselves as not being American. And the right-wingers say, that's a very negative assertion. No, hell, hell no. It's a very positive assertion. We know exactly who we don't want to be. There is something great about being Canadian. Um, we have a long history of uh, peace, order, and good government. 
um we did not have a civil war uh, our our uh, our charter of rights was our alamo without this civil war uh, and we have a sense of obligation to each other that's one respect for each other dignity for each other what did pierre elliot trudeau say when he when he spoke in parliament about multiculturalism canada has no official policy right. there are a million ways of being a canadian so long as you obey the law and of course you pay your taxes that's a very canadian thing to do you know um so we we need to keep reminding ourselves that uh that we are blessed in this country harun siddiqui uh is one of the biggest names in canadian journalism history he's been talking a bit about his his background coming to this country uh in from india 1967 sort of starting off in toronto spending a decade in branded manitoba working there as a reporter before returning to the toronto star and paving a, a truly incredible career over many decades uh, at uh, at the toronto star he puts he's put a lot of it down in a book uh, out now called my name is not harry of course uh, a book titles say it all uh, often <laughs> and i had and i had to ask you of course about the title Harun, because I'm sure at some point someone said, "Hey, have you ever suggested, ever considered being called Harry instead?" No, no, not suggested. Not, not asked. They just call you Harry. Right? Okay, I get you. <laughs> um, if you remember, there was a, a premier of Manitoba, Sterling Lyon, who was mm -hmm. conservative, was brilliant. Um, he was a guy who was along with Alan Blakeney, who opposed uh, the repatriation of the constitution. If you remember. You agreed or disagreed with him, but he was also conservative, uh, socially and otherwise. And he was old-fashioned. He was uh, Harry, hi Harry. So once, I, when I was in Brandon, I used to go to the legislature once in a while to cover the legislature. And he said, "Hi Harry," and I said, "Premier, I have told you I'm not Harry. I don't look like Harry. I don't want to be Harry. My name is so and so." And there was sort of stern, awkward silence, and he walked away. I was telling this story to Adrian Clarkson, uh, the former Governor General who lives in Toronto and happens to be a friend. She said, "That is the title of your book." I said, "What do you mean that's the title of my book? That is the title of your book. That's it." So that's how we got the title of this book. So I thank Mr. Sterling Lyon and Adrian Clarkson. Uh, to polar opposite people for for the title of this book. <laughs> yes, it, it is. It, no, absolutely. It's so Canadian, it, you see. It's so Canadian. It, it does yes. really grab. It does really grab. I mean, there's so much to talk about over the course of of, of, of the long career you've had, and and it continues. Um, but I, I was curious just about what where you think. The but the state of journalism these days, really, because it was so interesting reading about your past in Brandon and being reminded about what it was like to learn the ropes and then and then do all the things you've done. I mean, clearly you had the talent already to do it. You just needed, uh, I guess in that case, you just they, you needed the bona fides in this country, according to whatever hierarchy existed. Uh, but after that, it was it, it was incredible to spend all those years at the Star. You watched so much history unfold and uh, with, with a critical eye at times. And you did swim against the tide, which wasn't always easy, I know. No, you see, because the um, Toronto Star had a long history of social change, championing social change. It was championing for um, immigrants and Chinese immigrants in the 1930s, for example. Uh, many times um, it went to bat for the, uh, not many times, there was a crusade for getting workers' rights, for compensation, workers' compensation, the kinds of things that nobody ever thought about at that time. So some of us were just simply carrying on a long tradition and one of those traditions also was independence of Canada, the sovereignty of Canada, which meant not necessarily we stopped bowing to London, but we got a whole breed of people who want to bow to Washington, a kind of either inferiority complex or 
the business reality that much of our trade depends um, with the United States. So therefore, we should suck up to them. Um, but there are moments in Canadian history or where people have held their independence. It was Mr. John Diefenbaker, less people forget, who sold wheat to China and, and the Soviet Union. It was Mr. Pierre Elliott Trudeau who opened relations with Cuba and opened the door to China. It was Jean Chrétien who, in the in the middle of a great furor in 2003, said no to George W. Bush to the war in Iraq. Um, so we do have this streak of independence about us uh, and a sense of sovereignty of Canada that we should hold. And that was in that tradition that I was writing. When you look out at um, some of the commentary going on these days about how the world is becoming a dangerous, <clears throat> bad place, here we are, you know, the peace dividend is over. Canada's sort of naively wandering its way through the flower fields as we always have. Um, do, do you buy that? Do you, do you buy the sort of the narrative that started now that Canada's kind of now Canada's become a naive country that is sort of ill-equipped for the for the elbows up world we now live in? That kind of thinking has always been there. I mean, in two thousand three, back to the Iraq War, mm-hmm. every um, most major newspapers across the country, from the front pages, were calling for us to join the United States in this holy war kind of thing. You know, they were being more patriotic for America uh, than some Americans themselves. Um, There was a demonstration at City Hall in Toronto, you know, where it was a pro-war demonstration, uh, where most of the protesters came in their limos, including the premier of the province of the time, uh, Mr. Ernie Eves, and the Bay Street Street, uh, uh, biggies came. But the majority public opinion in Canada overwhelmingly was opposed to that, to that war. And up to this day, when Mr. Krichan gets up and mentions Iraq, or even a liberal mentions at any liberal meeting, how we stayed out of the Iraq war, a great round of applause and so on, you know. So question is, does the government of the day have the backbone to stand up? Uh, is there a Diefenbaker who says, no, this is in our interest to sell wheat to the Soviet Union at this point? Is there a Trudeau senior who says, no, uh, we need to open relations with Cuba and so on. The current prime minister, unfortunately, seems to lack a backbone. Um, he wants to please all sides. So that's a, that's democracy at work. One day he wants to support the, support the uh, supporters of Israel. The other day he wants to nod in the direction of those who are supporting uh, Palestinians, which is politics, understood. Um, but he has not articulated yet uh, for you and me what is in the interest of Canada? Yeah, Your job is to listen to all the lobbies and so on and all the sides and then articulate. I've heard from all sides, this I think is in the interest of Canada and tell Canadians that. He is yet to explain that. Yeah. Well, Haroon, as, uh, thank you so much for walking for just the chat. I really appreciate it. The book is called My Name is Not Harry and Now We Know Why. <laughs> thank you so much for your time tonight. <laughs> uh, I'm grateful to have talked to you and for your time. Take care. 